Psalm 421, we've been asked to mark that and we'll do that and use that later in the service this evening. As always, we're thankful for the presence of each and every one and I perhaps should make one additional announcement. I think I, last Wednesday I made an uh, made announcement of some vacation Bible schools taking place this week. Uh, I'll be speaking at the West Sparta Church of Christ tomorrow night, but the time is not 7. I received an email from uh, the preacher there, and it's at 6.30. So if that was a part of your plans, well, I certainly keep that in mind. 6.30 tomorrow night at the West Sparta Congregation. Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock at the Willette Church of Christ. Uh, of course, you'll be here, but please keep us in your prayers, if you would, for that service on Wednesday. And also on Thursday night at the Montrose Church of Christ. Uh, again, that one over in uh, Smith County. So keep in mind that one too. If, you, if at all you can come be with us. I think that one starts at 6.30. So keep that in mind. I believe that's right. Tonight, as you and I come to this part of our worship, we continue our series of studies in regard to the Holy Spirit. It is a rather extensive subject, a subject with much, of course, that could be said, a subject that the Bible challenges us on so many levels about the nature of not only who the Spirit is, but the work that He does and the way that He does it. It is for that reason that this next slide is just in many ways a quick summary of all the lessons to this point. Our first lesson reminded us on the person of the Holy Spirit, that He is a divine personality, not merely an emotion or an influence or a force, but a divine personality. The second lesson cast a spotlight on the work of the Holy Spirit in creation and in revelation. And we found, of course, the Word of God to be the prime matter of His presentation to us. Lesson number three, as you can tell, cast a spotlight on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Again, a topic of much interest, but thankfully the Word of God reveals to us the nature and character of what the baptism was for and who received it. Lesson number four, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We, in fact, studied in some detail the nature of Acts 2.38 and Acts 10, verses 45 and 46, and we found again that the Word of God is rather clear in its development of that point. The next lesson was the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. We looked at them in some detail and strove to appreciate the role that they had in the first century church. They are not available today. The next lesson, lesson number six, was on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Bible directly asserts the Holy Spirit indwells Christians, but our question was, how does He do it? And thankfully, we were able to answer that and put to rest much of the confusion that seemingly surrounds that topic. Finally, the matter of conversion in the Holy Spirit. That was our most recent lesson. And we noticed again, the Spirit has a role in conversion, as you and I can see in John, in John chapter 3, verses 3, 4, and 5. That brings us to lesson 8. Tonight's lesson, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. A moment ago, of course, Brother Mike just read for us from Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. And I hope that you'll keep your Bible open to that location. And what we shall do is give some attention, first of all, as a way of introduction, to the nature of that topic. You probably have at least either yourself or known someone who has been a bit troubled by the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
you perhaps have heard someone say some of the things that I'm about to repeat because the way in which it troubles individuals is about to be noted. First of all, may we say it's mentioned three times in the New Testament explicitly. Once in Mark chapter 3, once in Luke chapter 12, and once in Matthew chapter 12. All three are rehearsals, of course, of a presentation by Jesus. And so it is in that context that this presentation of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit takes place. Now in a moment, we'll take more note about each one of those passages. But for right now, note this confusion. You probably would be familiar with what was just read a moment ago, but let me reiterate it. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 28. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And in the other gospel accounts, again, those other passages, it asserts that the person guilty of this has never forgiveness, not in this world or in the world to come. Well, whatever this is then is extraordinarily serious. It is something that might well be described as the unpardonable sin. It's something, again, out of which one is not able, according to the word of Jesus, to receive forgiveness. And so, note some of the questions. Some Christians may wonder, what is this sin? Have I committed it? Because if I have, Jesus said, I can never receive forgiveness from it, and it means I'm lost, and I will forever be lost. Many have, using that idea, made several assertions. Some have thought maybe murder is the unpardonable sin. If I, in cold-blooded murder, take another life, is that the unpardonable sin? Others have asserted maybe it is suicide. If I take my own life, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Others have asserted maybe it's adultery. If I thus commit that act known as adultery, have I become guilty of the unpardonable sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Others have asserted it's apostasy, that a person who was once a faithful Christian and chooses to leave that faithfulness, have they thus become into a position in which they are now guilty of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Maybe you have heard additional assertions, but at least those are some that you might have heard. Let me offer these thoughts. We mentioned murder. I would assert to you apparently murder is not the unpardonable sin, because isn't it true in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 47, those who had put Jesus to death, Peter told them they could be forgiven. So apparently, murder is not the unforgivable sin. It's not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. May I also say, in addition to that, Paul too is a prime example. Remember, he in fact had lent his support to the killing of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and yet Paul was a forgiven man. One more time, it appears that murder is thus not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. As you and I close that slide, though, might we say that there's not a single one of the three passages we mentioned that connects the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit directly with suicide. It's not mentioned in the Mark 3 text. It isn't mentioned in the Matthew 12 or in the Luke 12 passages. Thus, it seems that's not the matter of choice either. On our next slide, 
what about the matter of adultery? We are explicitly told in the New Testament about individuals who were guilty of that, and yet they receive forgiveness. We could, for instance, make mention of that man in 1 Corinthians 5 who himself was guilty of the sin, and yet in 2 Corinthians 2 he had received forgiveness. It thus appears that adultery is not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit either. Perhaps one final observation. A moment ago I raised at least the thought in the mind of some, could it be apostasy? That is to say, a person who chooses to walk away from faithfulness, a person who's once a faithful Christian but then chooses to wander off into unfaithfulness, are they the ones that are guilty of this blasphemy? If you'll notice several passages in Acts chapter 8, verses 18 to 24, we have record of a man named Simon who was baptized and was a person faithful to the Lord, and yet he committed a sin. You may notice that he urged Peter to pray for him, that the matter of forgiveness might be his. Apparently he could be forgiven. It would thus seem that that too is not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So at this point, might we be quick to say, it wasn't murder, it wasn't apostasy, it wasn't suicide. And furthermore, as you and I have looked at these, it wasn't, it wasn't the matter of adultery either. What then is it? Could you and I perhaps have committed it and thus will be in danger for all eternity? You'll notice further on that slide, it's time to revisit our text. First of all, in Matthew chapter 12, the very passage in which this occurs, the first mention in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, I'll begin reading in verse number 22. Matthew 12, verse 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself." How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world neither in the world to come. That's reading through, of course, verse number 33. I'm sorry, verse number 32. Some of these thoughts on that slide. 
let's put back into place the setting of what we have just noted in the passage. You'll notice in verse number 22 that one had been brought to Jesus. It says, one that was possessed with the devil. Immediately we're reminded then that in this particular occasion and at this time, it was possible for an individual to be possessed by a demon. Now thankfully, that's not something that can occur today. But we appreciate that by way of the Old Testament prophecy, it was foretold that the possibility of that would cease. But it was possible when Jesus and His apostles were walking upon the earth. To say that another way, an evil spirit, a demon, could thus forcibly enter into an individual. And there might be several consequences of it. In this case, verse number 22 says that that individual who was thus possessed by this demon was blind. He was unable to see anymore. The demon caused this person to be blind. But not only that, he was dumb. He couldn't speak. That evil demon caused this individual to neither be able to speak nor to see. You can imagine the kind of havoc that that must have wreaked in the first century when a demon could forcibly enter into an individual and cause behaviors perhaps like this. You'll notice, though, it just simply says in that same verse, He, that's Jesus, healed him, that's this possessed man, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. He was instantly able to see again. He was instantly able to speak. Needless to say, a notable miracle was done in the very presence of those who were privileged to witness that event. Jesus healed this individual. Now, it doesn't give us any details further in this instance about the way in which that was done. It just says the Lord healed him. And so on that slide, I've asked you to note this with me. This was a very clear and demonstrable and irrefutable miracle. A person that was blind and dumb, instantly able to see and speak. Now, you may notice verse number 23 quickly brings us to this note. All the people were amazed. They recognized the marvel of this event. They understood the incredible character of it. You'll notice what some of them said. Is not this the son of David? How could this person, this son of David, accomplish what we've just witnessed? But now the next verse begins to take us in a different direction. There were some Pharisees who heard it. It may well be that as you give thought to it, it says they heard it. What did they hear? It would appear that they heard what had been said in verse 23. There were some people in that audience who witnessed that great event, and they made the statement, Isn't this the son of David? And when the Pharisees heard it, it was they who upon hearing said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And so we learn in verse 24, 24 and 25, that what Jesus did to heal this person is He cast out that unclean spirit. He removed it. He forcibly insisted that He leave, and that unclean spirit had no choice. May you and I never forget, the Lord Jesus Christ had power over them. Although they were mighty and although they were powerful, they were not as powerful as the Master. When He gave them orders, 
they could do nothing but obey. Isn't that an amazing thing to consider? Although the devil is a strong man, and although his henchmen, all of those demons who in fact follow him, they too are mighty, they had no choice but to obey the Master. Let's note further though in verse 24. These Pharisees, upon hearing this and the kind of acclaim that some were giving to Jesus, they said, This fellow, namely Jesus, doth not cast out devils but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. They thus accused and asserted that the power by which Jesus cast out those demons was by none other than the prince of the demons themselves. That was their claim. That was their assertion. And so you may notice at the bottom of that slide, Jesus quickly, notice, did not become overtly angry, but by unanswerable logic, He crushed what they said. Jesus, verse 25, knew their thoughts. And He said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. The point is clear. Jesus said, you Pharisees are claiming that I've cast out that unclean spirit by the power of Beelzebub. And that word Beelzebub simply means the prince of the devils, the prince of unclean spirits. Thus the Pharisees claim that Jesus used the power of unclean spirits to cast out the unclean spirit. What sense does that make? Well, clearly that would be a house divided against itself. That would be a kingdom divided against itself. Satan would be used to cast out Satan. The Lord not only could appreciate the nonsense in that, obviously those upon hearing it could see it as well. And so on this slide, some questions taken directly from verse 26. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, and clearly his kingdom won't stand. Clearly his kingdom will not abide. But that verse closes by saying, How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom, the Lord asked, do your children do it? The Lord asked them some questions here they were not easily able to answer. They obviously had accused him of what wasn't true. It was not by Beelzebub the Lord cast out that unclean spirit. It was not by the power of the devil he had done it. But rather, as Jesus is quick to say, note with me the language of verse 28. If it's not by Beelzebub that that unclean spirit was cast out, the only other logical choice is God. And so, if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. That means the kingdom of God has come in your midst in the sense that the power of God is evident. The great Messiah, the anointed one from heaven is here and the full spirit is upon him. Now, they weren't quite prepared for that element in logic or at least that conclusion. And so you'll notice on that slide one final thing the Lord said. Or else, verse 29, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man? Without doubt, the devil is the strong man. I have entered his house. I've cast out the demon. And if I've been able to do that clearly, I've bound the strong man. Jesus is stronger than the devil. He always was. 
He always will be. It is in that context that we find what will appear in verses 31 and 32. And so at the bottom of that slide, it is in direct consideration of that moment. Jesus begins verse 31 with this word, wherefore. I hope all of us are impressed with that. That's much like therefore. It is a premise based upon the facts that have just occurred. Here's a conclusion in other words. This is the matter that follows from what has just been presented to us. Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Now as you and I piece some of these things together, the Lord used the word blasphemy. Let's make sure we appreciate the thrust of that word. The word blasphemy comes from a Greek word that's a composition of two terms. Blapto, which means to injure, and feme, which means to speak. So it means to injure one by speaking against them. To injure by usage of words. Jesus thus said in verse 31, "...all manner of sin and blasphemy..." shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. So, to speak injuriously against the Holy Spirit, Jesus said that will not be forgiven, either in this world or in the one to come. Now at the bottom of that slide, you may notice the Lord continued by saying that all manner of these things directed against the Son could be forgiven but when directed against the Holy Spirit, that they would not be, that they in fact would forever remain. One last thing on that slide then would be, the way the American Standard renders it is again a very penetrating thing, and I've placed it in quotation marks for each of us to note. Notice that such is said to be guilty of an eternal sin. And eternal sin, again, would be one for which there is no forgiveness. No wonder this is such a frightening thing and something that has troubled many people. Back to what we noted at the outset of the lesson, am I then guilty of this? Are you guilty of this? This is certainly a serious matter. Let's turn our slide to the next point, and let's develop it somewhat more thoroughly by making these observations. A moment ago in Mark chapter 3, Mike read for us verses 28 and 29, but it's time to note verse 30. There's a premise that you and I should keep in mind, and namely is this, in terms of the Word of God, it is its own best commentary. And the context will in many cases inform us as to the clues or the details for the interpretation of a passage that might otherwise be challenging. And so, again, noting verses 28 and 29, it reads like this, but I will add verse 30 this time. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wheresoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said, he hath an unclean spirit. Because they said... He hath an unclean spirit. May I suggest, verse 30 is the clue. 
that will help us identify and help us appreciate what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In fact, I've asked you to note this observation. Here were a group of individuals, these Pharisees and maybe even others who agreed with what they said. And they directly attributed what Jesus had just done in the casting out of that unclean spirit. They attributed that power to the devil. They attributed it to Beelzebub. They attributed it to a different source of power than God. In so doing, Jesus now directly taught those guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit when it was by the Spirit of God that Jesus had cast out that unclean spirit. They attributed that great power to something other than the Spirit of God. And that leads us to this statement. These Pharisees and these others had seen firsthand the great power of Jesus Christ. They had seen the power of God manifested through what the Savior had done. They had seen this work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus in casting out that Spirit. And yet, they claimed it was not of God. They claimed that it was somehow of the devil that it occurred. That, it would seem, is directly the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. To put that in slightly different language, they witnessed firsthand the deity of Jesus... They saw firsthand this great miracle He did, but yet did not give credit to God for it. Did not give credit to the Spirit for it. They attributed it to the devil. And in that blasphemy, they spoke against the Spirit. Could I again call attention to the statement we had noted in Matthew chapter 12? Again, in verse number 28, it says, "...if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God..." The Spirit is the one that manifestly acted in the casting out of that Spirit as Jesus carried out this work. And when those Pharisees attributed that to the devil, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They looked in blindly, if you please, upon what the Spirit had done. The Spirit so openly, so powerfully, so easily and unanswerably did this. And yet those Pharisees wouldn't acknowledge it. They attributed it to the devil. And so on that slide, we can now perhaps appreciate this. Jesus is not walking on this earth today. He has long since ascended back to heaven. And furthermore, the age of miracles is no more. Nobody on earth can perform miracles. That was one of those spiritual gifts that you and I noted in a study a few weeks ago. And the laying on of the hands of an apostle is the only way by which the power to do that could be transferred. Since there are no longer any apostles, there's nobody on earth today that can work miracles. May I thus suggest, in light of that, since the age of miracles has passed, at least directly one cannot commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit today. That is no more. There's nobody doing miracles in front of us for which you and I could say, well, it must be by the power of the devil that's done. Or it must be by astrology. Or it must be by some other force. That can't happen today because there are no miracles. But before we at least close that discussion, may I say we ought not fail to note this. Did you notice the particular artifact, or at least the consequence of this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is it couldn't be forgiven. It wouldn't be forgiven. 
may I ask, is there anything else similar to which that could be said? Look with me to 1 John chapter 5. Now, although, of course, this is a different subject, in the sense that it is not described as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, notice how it is described for us. In 1 John chapter 5, let me begin reading in verse number 15. And if we know that He hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of Him. And if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. There's a distinction made in that passage. There is a sin unto death. There is a sin not unto death. Now, John directly wrote that those who commit sins not unto death, verse number 16 says, they can be forgiven of them. But as far as the sin unto death, no reason to pray for that. It won't be forgiven. Now, may I ask that each of us think pretty clearly about this. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. I suppose we could ask the same question about this we asked at the beginning of the lesson. What is the sin unto death? Am I guilty of it? Because clearly it's a sin that leads to death, and apparently there's nothing I can do about it. In the sense that, until what takes place we're about to describe... May I suggest this interpretation, putting all that together. Jesus Christ died on the cross, shedding His blood in order to make possible the forgiveness of sin. What sins can be forgiven today? Notice on the slide. Every single sin can be forgiven, regardless what I may have done, what I may have said. What I may have thought, every single sin can be forgiven so long as I'm willing to repent of it and approach the Lord as He commands. Notice all those verses that I've asked you to consider with me. In Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Are there any exceptions listed to that? Not one. John 1, 29, speaking of Jesus, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. What sins? Are there any exceptions listed? Romans 6, verses 16 to 18. Again, no exceptions listed. 1 John 2, verse 2, Jesus Christ Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Any exceptions listed? None. The blood of Christ can cleanse any and all sin, period. But may we ask this, what if a person refuses to repent? Although the blood of Christ can forgive, what if this individual chooses not to repent, chooses not to obey the gospel, chooses not to return to be a faithful child of God if he or she once was and is now wayward? What if that person makes that choice? May I say, 
if they never repent, they've committed the sin unto death. Doesn't any, do any good to pray that they'll be saved in that state. They won't be. They've rejected the only thing that'll save them, the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ and faithfulness to it. The sin unto death, you'll notice, has a similar penalty to that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It wouldn't be forgiven, and if a person won't repent, if a person won't come to the Lord Jesus Christ on His terms, Jesus won't forgive him. The Lord has taught that in His Word. As you and I close that slide, may I say then that if one refuses to repent and you arrive at death in that state, sadly you're lost. Sadly, you are in that position in which you have remained in that sin unto death. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that terribly awful? One more thing perhaps about that is in light of what we've just studied, we can see at least a similarity. Although today you and I cannot commit this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit directly, if we choose to be disobedient and remain in that state, the penalty is the same. The end result is the same. We won't be forgiven. How utterly awful. This isn't the only place in the Bible that that's described. I thought we'd end our sermon looking at the other place that makes it so abundantly plain, Hebrews chapter 10. Would you turn with me to that chapter and let's at least look briefly at it as we close our lesson. Hebrews, the 10th chapter. I'll begin reading in verse 26 through verse 29. And if you would, listen to the language that the inspired writer has used with me. For if we sin willfully... After that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye? Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. There's our statement. The person who has done this has done despite, note the title, unto the Holy Spirit. Now, our study throughout this series has related to the Holy Spirit, and notice here someone has committed a despite unto the Holy Spirit. It's easy to see what had happened. Here are individuals who had become Christians, but they had chosen to walk away from it. They had chosen to go back into a world of sin. They had chosen to live out of consistency with the Word of God. And the inspired writer rather bluntly told them, the only thing you have to look forward to in that condition, verse 27, is a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. If you won't come back to Christ, you cannot be saved. Doesn't matter how much people may pray for you. Doesn't matter how much thought they may have for your good. If you won't come back to Christ, verse number 29, of how much sore punishment will you be counted worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant, the blood He shed, as an unholy or unworthy thing. That person has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. 
Notice that's capital S, the Holy Spirit of grace. One last thing then on that slide. It would seem perhaps interesting to note the Greek word that's behind it. Inubrizo. It means to insult. It means to outrage. It means to treat despitefully or to treat contumely. The person who is in this condition has insulted the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that sound like our word blasphemy or at least make us think of it? This person has blasphemed the Holy Spirit in the sense that you'll notice that the Word of God is what the Spirit has provided. And if you and I refuse, even though we appreciate and understand what it says, if we blatantly choose to disobey it, we are in fact choosing to insult the Holy Spirit. It's His book. He gave it to us. As we close our lesson then tonight, we have studied all of these things. And isn't it true that that context of Hebrews chapter 10 reminds us of a number of things? May you and I as a Christian never allow ourselves, due to indifference or apathy, or the direct nature of the devil's temptation to bring us to do despite unto the Holy Spirit of grace. For if we do, we're trotting underfoot the very Son of God. We're counting the blood that is shed an unworthy thing. And we're doing despite unto the grace, the Spirit of the grace. The seriousness of all of that allows us to conclude our lesson then like this. In a very brief attempt, we've tried to study the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's a serious thing, and sadly, some of those of that day were able to be guilty of it because they did not acknowledge the power behind the miracles the Lord did. Although you and I today can't be exactly guilty of that same thing, we can be guilty of something that carries the same penalty. We've looked at a couple of possibilities. We've looked at a couple of biblical passages. We've seen that if we commit sin and refuse to come to the gospel, we'll die lost. And we will suffer the same penalty as those who were directly guilty of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And not only that, we are also guilty of doing despite under the Spirit of grace. I trust that each of us have been encouraged. We've been edified to, in fact, walk in the way that the Lord would have us to walk. Because we never want to do despite under the Spirit of grace. This evening, as the gospel invitation is offered, each of us stand blankly before it. If I need to respond, if you need to respond, may none of us delay. If that's the need, eternity's too long and life's too short. And we need to make sure that we're living correctly and rightly. If tonight we could be of help by praying to God as a wayward child of God, if you'd repent and confess those things, He's promised to forgive them. And He's promised to welcome you back as a faithful child of His. If there's anyone, though, that would wish simply for prayers of encouragement or strength, we'd, we'd be honored to provide that kind of prayer as well. If either of these things would be the need of your heart and life, the gospel invitation is extended and open, and we certainly would encourage you to come while together we stand and while we sing.